You're listening to Arts Talk Radio, and I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you interviews as well as news relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, which are either in English or where language is no problem. We concentrate on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and the surrounding areas. Arts Talk Radio Online. Interviews and features on the arts in English. Encouraged by the response to the first drama on Arts Talk Radio a few weeks ago, this week we are presenting the first broadcast of a short story by Atta Burkhard entitled Making for Paradise. And we're joined by Atta Burkhard herself this morning on Arts Talk Radio. Welcome. Hello. Now, I believe the inspiration for this story came from real events when you were a child, although it's fiction, it is based on your experience as a very young child. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, it is. Uh, my mother and we were refugees and uh, we were being kicked out of Austria repeatedly. Uh, Austria was a Russian zone in those days. How <laughs> do you mean repeatedly? You mean you kept going back and kept getting kicked out again? Yes, yes, yes. We kept being kicked out and then we had to travel on the train and obviously Russia, the Russians were occupying Austria and they were extremely unpleasant and fierce and destructive when they controlled the trains. Because although this, this story is fiction, the inspiration for it was very much from your own experiences of what you saw when you were travelling as a very young child. Yes, it was. And uh, when you're writing fiction from a true life experience, basically you just then take it further than it actually happens. So it's a sort of what if, which then develops mm -hmm. from the real event. Now, this story takes place in Central Europe and your two or three novels take place in the south of France. And now you're living in Holland. You're very much an internationalist. Yes, I am. It's inevitable. I mean, when you don't have any roots, when you start off born a refugee from refugee parents and then you move from country to country and nobody really wants you and eventually you find a home in France and then you kind of, you still don't have any roots. Because I think you then, you then went to England after that, so you have to include England as well in your list of countries. I do. I, I went to England after my uh, final exams in, in the Lycée in France and I just made my career in um, magazines and publishing and uh, English became my working language but all my other languages are more or less on, on the same level because each chunk, chunk of my life was so important that it's all part of me. OK, well, uh, let's listen to the story now. Making for Paradise by Atta Burkhard. The train judders and screeches to a halt a hundred yards before the frontier. In the compartment the air is still with fear. The refugees sit tightly packed, with not an inch to spare between them. All but Maria and the two nuns are wrapped in thick coats. It is summer, but no matter how high the temperature soars, a coat is the most precious possession, a reliable fortress against the winter cold, just a few weeks away. Baskets, bags and bundles squat on laps, held tight. If exhaustion brings a moment's sleep, an opportunist thief is sure to strike. The hands grip too tightly, white knuckles showing, but all of them sit as if travelling to town for the weekly market. 
Each one knows that the other is on the run, but self-respect dictates restraint, or at least the pretense of it. The hope of crossing the border in one piece, perhaps with a few meager possessions, recedes with each minute the train stands motionless. They sit there, Maria thinks, like chickens on their perch, knowing at any minute now the fox will make his entrance. Britta stands, peering out of the window, her small hands are pressing hard onto the windowpane. Anna is lying across Maria's lap, asleep. She has grown and cannot be passed off as a baby any longer. Maria pulls her thin coat over the tiny girl. Only her dark locks can be seen. The soldiers, now running wild all over the border areas, have never been known to harm a mother with a small child. Not yet, anyhow. How can all this be happening just two hours away from people living in comfort and security? The whole world is watching, but no one comes. A bony silhouette blocks out the light from the door. Maria looks up. The fox is here, she thinks. A tall soldier in a loosely fitting uniform tears the door open. His peak cap is pulled low over a pair of squinting eyes which dart from one huddled passenger to another, then up to the bulging luggage rack and back down again. The angle at which the eyes are set make it hard to guess what or whom the man is staring at. Fra! His gravel voice cuts into the oppressive silence. Fra! He points at her and then at the luggage above her seat. Uri! Uri! He grunts, and she understands he is on the hunt for watches and jewellery. A second soldier pushes into the compartment and orders the two nuns out. The squinting soldier stares at Maria, grabs her by the sleeve, forcing her to stand up. She feels his large, bony hand gripping her as he drags her into the corridor. Behind her, Britta is hammering on the window. Mama! Mama, look! The girl turns, but Maria is gone. The soldiers are shoving the two nuns along the railway bank. A thick-set, short soldier with bowed legs pushes the middle-aged nun so that she falls to her knees. He holds the barrel of his machine gun under her chin and makes her get up again. On the train, faces press against the window to watch the spectacle. Some look away, afraid of the searching, menacing stares of the uniformed men. Others furtively strain, looking from the corner of their eyes, knowing it could be their turn next. Maria stands shivering on the coarse gravel by the rail track, her light summer coat billowing in the breeze. The fox has picked me, she whispers. She tries to move backwards out of the view of the soldiers. Her scarf is pulled low, half hiding her face behind the child she holds up in front of her. The soldier's boots crunch nearer on the rough stones. They draw level with Maria. The taller of the two stops for an instant and approaches the young woman. The squinting eyes scrutinize Maria. The soldier reaches to lift her scarf. On his arm, a row of wristwatches glint under his uniform sleeve. The nuns, too, have stopped. 
They stand like birds on uneven ground, their thin black canvas shoes and brown stockinged feet peeking out from under black habits. They tremble, huddling close, too frightened to move a muscle. A rusty iron bed stands on a patch of grass by the side of the cornfield that stretches along the railway line. The stocky soldier waves his machine gun towards the bed. Sweat beads run down his face and he catches them with his thick and pallid tongue. Maria casts her eyes to the ground to escape the squinting gaze, lifting the little girl even higher in front of her face. The cross-eyed soldier turns his back to her. His body is well-shaped and strong. He looks as though he has been hungry for a long time. His spine is clearly visible under his uniform jacket. The vertebrae form a long reptilian line. The signs of the war are showing not only on the conquered, but also on the conquerors. He stands with his feet apart. Maria can clearly see a pistol stuffed into his dust-covered boot. He watches his comrade order the nuns onto the iron bed with a dirty mattress that had once been blue. He strides over to the bed. As the younger nun climbs onto it, he turns to Maria again, and with his eyes fixed on her, butts the nun between the shoulder blades. Both nuns now stand on the sprung bed, wobbling from side to side to keep their balance. The stocky soldier licks his lips. His watery blue eyes are bulging with slime mischief. Maria gazes at the bed, puzzled. How did it come to stand by the railway track? Apart from a small wooden shack, there are no buildings nearby. As far as the eye can see, nothing but undulating fields and meadows. The bed stands there, a purposeful presence, now witnessing the sordid scene. A hopeful refugee must have dragged it for miles along the railway line, stretched out on it during the short summer nights, waiting for a slow train to pass which he could board illegally. Has he been lucky? Is he now far away? The squinter continues to stare in Maria's direction, but his cap shields his eyes and she can't see what he's focusing on. The other soldier lifts the old nun's habit with the end of a gun barrel, speaking in lurid tones to his comrade. The guttural sound of a language Maria cannot distinguish rings out in laughter as the old nun's baggy cotton drawers emerge. Her loose brown stockings are held up by a pair of jam jar rings which glow in bright orange. The stocky soldier roars something to his comrade, who in turn begins to lift the young nun's robe with the end of his gun. She offers no resistance, as a pair of thick woolen socks and trembling white legs are exposed. Maria stands stock still. Britta and her luggage have remained on the train. If the train leaves without her, many swift hands will dispose of her possessions within minutes. The child will be handed to the station master at the next railway station. She will become one more lost five-year-old to be tossed around the country consumed by war. In the draft of the railway bank, Anna begins to whimper on Maria's shoulder. Shush, whispers Maria and bends over her daughter to escape the soldier's eyes. And still the squinter does not let Maria out of his sight. His rough hand brushes between the quivering thighs of the young nun and he orders her to bounce up and down on the bed.
Maria lowers her head. The creaking rhythm of the bed springs reminds her of a couple in the throes of lovemaking. When she looks up, the young soldier smiles at her. The fox knows, she thinks. The train driver leans out of his window, throwing up his hands. The stocky soldier waves his machine gun and fires into the air, ordering him to leave. Slowly the train begins to move, setting the edge of the wheat field in motion. A compartment window opens, and two black bundles and a basket are thrown out onto the stony bank next to Maria, spilling water bottles, bread and apples onto the ground. And then Maria sees two thin legs emerge from the window. A busty woman in a straw hat held down by a string and an elderly man in a black hat and coat are dangling Maria's daughter, Britta, from the train window. Catch her! Quick! Catch her! They call out sounds, breathless from the strain. The squinter looks up and runs along the moving train to where the girl is now hanging by one arm from the window. Britta drops into his arms and brings him down with her. The girl falls on top of him and struggles free. She stands over the soldier and begins to pound the man's face with her tiny fists, kicking her red shoes into his side. He sits up, taking the blows, staring in disbelief as she reaches out and punches him on the nose. Blood spatters onto his jacket and still he does nothing to quash the child's furious assault. She stops at the sight of the blood stands face to face with the sitting soldier, then turns, runs to Maria and disappears into the folds of her mother's coat. The dazed soldier tugs at his uniform jacket. With his dirty sleeve, he wipes the blood from his face and gets to his feet. He picks up his rifle, and without a look at Maria, returns to the entertainment in progress. With a sombre frown, Anna watches the nuns bouncing in front of the two laughing soldiers. Then she lets out an ear-shattering cry. Maria whisks Anna up high and, briskly walking over to the soldier, holds the girl's crying face close to his. And the cross-eyed soldier lowers his gaze. At that moment, the tiny child senses that as long as she screams and tears roll, they will be safe. The stocky soldier roughly pushes the nuns off the bed. He barks something at the squinter and makes a resigned gesture with his machine gun. The young nun looks at Maria and smiles, a pure, forgiving smile, before she and the older nuns stumble ahead of the soldiers to the wooden shack where a jeep is parked. The squinter turns and walks backwards, pointing his gun at the young woman and child. Britta stirs like a frightened bird under Maria's coat. And still, Anna continues her piercing screams. The nuns have reached the shed and disappear behind it, followed by the soldiers. Anna stops crying abruptly and turns her head towards the shack. Her tear-glazed eyes do not blink as she waits. Everything is very still for a while. In the far distance, the train hoots, triumphant, from the other side of the border. A lark rises above, surveying all below, and Maria dares not raise her head. The young woman stands and waits. The wheatfield rustles in the breeze. In the silence, 
gunshots crack the air. By the shack, Maria sees the soldiers bend down. The stocky one fumbles with the flies of his trousers, steps to the edge of the field and relieves himself in full view of Maria. Then he calmly climbs into the driver's seat. The cross-eyed soldier stands with his gun lowered, looking at Maria. As his comrade turns the jeep, the young man raises his hand and gives a small, melancholy wave. He leaps onto the passenger seat and they speed past Maria and disappear in a cloud of dust. Maria does not know how much time has passed before she moves. Anna is resting her head on her mother's shoulder, breathing like a hunted animal. Clutching her child, Maria walks along the dry, narrow path to the shack. With the soldiers gone, Britta trails behind, picking poppies on the edge of the path. Behind the shack, two black forms lie spread out on the ground. Two flightless crows fallen to earth. The nuns' pale faces seem still as though they have laid down for an afternoon siesta. It smells of grass and blood and flowers, but mostly of warm blood. With Anna's head pressed against her face, Maria begins a slow walk back to the bed. There is no hurry now. She sets Anna down. By the rail track, bright red apples lie among the grey stones. Together they pick up the nun's basket and the food and water and neatly lay it out on the bed. She sits down on the dirty blue mattress and beds Anna down on her coat. The bread and water will sustain them for a few days. Maria will make use of the bed tonight. Perhaps a train will slow down and allow her to jump on board unseen. Till then, she will stretch out, watching over her daughters, watching and listening for the soldiers till dark, perhaps sleep, as the previous occupant of the bed might have done. Britta sits, legs dangling from the edge of the grubby mattress, counting her poppies. She sighs and puts the flowers down. Look, Mama, she says, and her fingers begin to undo the tiny white buttons of her blue cardigan. She pulls out what looks like a crumpled brown woolen sock. She lays it out on her lap, folding out two arms, two legs, a pointed face with two black buttons for eyes. I've saved my teddy, she smiles. Making for Paradise by Atta Burkhard was read by Kate Davis and produced by Michael Hasted for Arts Talk Radio. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk Radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever your interest in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk magazine, all one word, dot NL. Arts Talk magazine, dot NL. Well, doesn't time fly? That's the end of another edition of Arts Talk Radio. We'll be back in a week or so, hopefully with lots more interesting people to talk to. If you have any comments, please leave them in the box below. We're always going to be pleased to hear from you. My name is Michael Hasted, and so till the next time, it's goodbye. Goodbye.